Yes, sometimes you might take longer to accomplish the things you want. We just discussed that. That doesn't mean you will not accomplish it. It means that it's okay to pace yourself. It's okay to ask for help. Yeah. It's okay to seek accommodations. It's okay to seek your truth, your authenticity. And in that process, do not devalue your worth. Yeah. Welcome to the show. I am your host, Anya Fombat, and I spark the heart conversations that challenge questionable cultural and societal norms that threaten the well-being of the African community. And I also share stories about growing up as Africans in Africa and in the diaspora. I strongly believe that normalizing open discussions and sharing experiences, whether good or bad, will not only make you find your voice, but will broaden your sense of purpose and empower others to do the same. So if you have ever tried challenging certain African cultural and societal doctrines, or if you have ever felt like it is about time that we confronted these issues in our African community and do better as a people, or even if you have always been interested in learning about the experiences of other Africans growing up in Africa and the diaspora, then you are in the right place. Welcome to Living African. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Living African Podcast. So today we will be talking or rather continuing our conversation, sickle cell disease. And we have here with us Dr. Ojung Bate, and she's a pharmacist and a sickle cell survivor. Like she has found a way to live and thrive with sickle cell. And I'm super excited to have her on here because we have a lot to talk about regarding sickle cell. I know we've had a conversation about this before. But I feel like this is definitely a topic that we need to continue having conversations about because there's still a lot of people who are not aware of this disease or they're not even aware of how to deal with people who have this disease or at least even have some perspective about how people live with this disease. So I'm super excited to have you here. Ojang, how are you doing today? I'm well, I'm well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to really just share my story about living and thriving with sickle cell disease. Sure, sure. I am super excited to have you here as well. So let's just go straight into it. Can you please introduce yourself to our audience? Hi, everyone listening. My name is Ojong Bate, and I'm a pharmacist by profession. And I just recently got an MBA as well. So I enjoy clinical services and business. Yay. Um, outside of profession, I love advocacy for sickle cell disease because it affects me personally and um, a lot of people that I also know. One of my goals in life is to self-actualize to a point where advocacy will become my full-time passion and job. So... Today is just, I'm excited and I'm going to share with you everything I know and everything I can share. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you very much for that. Now, can you just tell us about your story from when you were born right up until now? Sure. So I was born in Boya, Cameroon, West Africa, for those who don't know. I was diagnosed with sickle cell officially at about nine months of age. So back in Cameroon then, uh, when I was born, and even now, they didn't have diagnosis at birth. So around six months of age to nine months of age, according to my parents, I was in and out of the hospital a lot. And they were very confused. And they didn't know what was going on. So they had to move from one hospital to another until I got diagnosed with sickle cell disease. Yeah. At the time, 
both parents did not know much about the disease state, nor how to even manage the condition. So that was the beginning of just learning and trying to cope to the best of their ability. Fast forward, completed primary school, and I wanted to go to boarding school. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I had about four or five interviews, four out of five of the schools rejected me because of physical cell disease, because it's very much stigmatized back in Africa. Yeah. And understood. So the boarding schools were hesitant to take a student that has such a disease state. But one of the schools accepted me on condition that my parents would pick me up every time I had a sexual disease crisis. Yeah. So I ended up spending five years in boarding school and I had a bad episode of crisis that left me unable to walk during Mm. my GCE. Mm -hmm. So I ended up after my five years of boarding school, I had to transition into a day school to finish high school. Mm-hmm. Then I immigrated to the U.S. after high school. And I have become an advocate for sickle cell disease since 15 or 20 years ago when I started learning about the disease myself with the support of my family members. And my knowledge and self-care advocacy just got better when I started pharmacy school and for over 10 years now, I have been thriving with yeah. this disease state and living a complete life around it. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. I, 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 I really like when you say living a complete life around it, because just because this disease has been stigmatized, especially back home in Africa, it's it literally is like a cloud above every sickle cell patient, I would think, because it's like they identify first as oh yes, I have sickle cell or I look like I have sickle cell even before trying to really understand or get people to understand who really they are, like they're above their sickle cell. So I really, really thank you very much for that brief introduction to yourself. Now, you know, your story of when you were diagnosed at nine months kind of remind me of the essence or the importance of, you know, the need to do sickle cell tests. You know, I personally, and I always say this, I personally, I'm a sickle cell carrier. So I am an AS and thankfully my husband is an AA. So our daughter fortunately is an AA, but you know, we knew all of these things even right when we were pregnant, you know, even before we got pregnant, you know, it was always important that we took this test to make sure that we were safe. And if we were both ASs, then we should have probably found a different way to conceive or found out what our options are, you know, but this is something that especially growing up now, there may have been some improvements, but growing up, it was not heard of. Like a lot of people did not really know their sickle cell status before getting into relationships or getting into marriages. And also, since it was relatively rare compared to other diseases, a lot of people did not understand it, you know. So I would not be surprised that you were diagnosed at nine months because sickle cell test, the sickle cell test was probably not one of the important tests that were done during pregnancy. I mean, back then, HIV and AIDS was probably more prevalent, right? So they would do like HIV and and AIDS or any STD tests and all of those other tests. But sickle cell tests or like genetic testing and all of those things, I will wonder if they were as prominent, you know. So what is the difference between, you know, the diagnosis in Cameroon versus here, now that you have learned about all of these things that, you know, you have learned through the years, especially in the U.S. Now, 
why do you think, and I probably just answered part of the question, but maybe you can give further insight to it. Like, why do you think, or what leads to a typical diagnosis in Cameroon, for example, which is very late compared to a timely diagnosis here in America? So, so back in Cameroon, they haven't established the testing at birth, right? One of my best friends is a sexual disease carrier. When she was pregnant with her first child, so right when she was pregnant, they did the tests, the genotype testing. Mm-hmm. Right? In the U.S., they do it for all pregnant women and even those who were not born here. But if you were born here, that test would be done at when you, your parent is still pregnant with you. So that was when my friend found out, for example, that she has the trait. So she was in panic mode because her husband had to go test for the trait as well. Mm-hmm. And luckily, he's AA, like, he, like just like your husband as well so here in the u.s that test is done either if you're born here first generation that will be done when your parent is pregnant with you or if you are an immigrant like ourselves and you are at a point of marriage or conception or having a baby you that test will be also done during childbearing process to know the genotype of your child and even in that process a lot of people find out their own genotypes so it's crazy how much we think that sexual disease is rare back in africa Cameroon, sexual disease is not very rare. It's just stigmatized so much that people hide it. Yeah. And the survival and prognosis and outcomes are really poor yeah. compared to here. Yeah. Because a lot of times patients go undiagnosed until they're three, four, five, and even six. And before some even get diagnosed, they already lost their lives. Yeah. Because with sickle cell disease, for example, once your child is diagnosed as soon as possible, you have to put them on penicillin prophylaxis to prevent infections that mm-hmm. cause other disease complications. Mm-hmm. So imagine having a child with sickle cell disease. They have gone undiagnosed for a couple of years. They can die from something as simple as a bacteria infection. Yeah. Because and not getting the right treatment to prevent these things. Yeah, that's that's very true. And you know, most of us, if not probably all of us, we kind of, especially some of us who were born back home, we kind of knew our sickle cell diagnosis or our sickle cell status as adults, you know, because we never ever even thought to do a test or our parents never even thought to do a test when we were babies or when we were born. So I really feel like making a sickle cell disease test mandatory at birth would save so many lives and also prevent even more sickle cell disease uh, cases. Because if I knew my sickle cell status at birth, I would be wise enough or I would be mindful enough to know that, okay, the first thing in my mind is at the back of my mind is whoever I am in a relationship with or whoever I end up marrying should not be a sickle cell carrier as well or should not be a SS or sickle cell patient so because it's with if you're a sickle cell patient and I am a carrier then it doesn't really serve our kids the best life you know so I feel like that would really help a lot of people and this is definitely a suggestion that you know it's my greatest hope that this should be made in especially in a lot of African countries because especially West African countries because studies actually show that like the Western African countries like Cameroon, Nigeria, Ghana, like they actually have the most cases of sickle cell disease in Africa. You know, if that is made, like if the sickle cell testing is made mandatory at birth, then it could really save a lot of lives. Now, I mean, looking back at life growing up in Cameroon, it wasn't like the easiest, right? (laughs) Especially in boarding school. I mean, I was not like sick all the time per se compared to like a typical sickle cell patient, but life was brutal, man. Like life was just difficult. 
Like, I don't want to go back to that life. It, it served me a purpose and it really, really helped me as I grew up. It gave me, you know, it taught me tenacity, it taught me resilience. It taught me all yeah. these values, but I just did not envy it. So as a sickle cell patient, I will only imagine what you went through in boarding school. I mean, you, I, I kudos to you. That's, you were so strong. I just cannot handle like if I had to go back to boarding school at this point I don't think I don't know what I would have done (laughs) I don't know how I would have even coped but you did it all and I really want to commend you for that but how was life out there like what were the things that you could do or could not do and stuff like that so I went to boarding school at nine, which is pretty young with having sexual disease. And my parents got a little bit of backlash, like, why are you sending a sick child to an institution and all that? But initially, when I was diagnosed, I think my both parents did a good job at making sure that I knew that they were there to help me overcome this disease state. But at the end of the day, it was my responsibility. So, for example, when we would go to clinics and hospitalizations and the doctors come and be talking to my parents, my mom would always tell the doctor, like, hey, talk to her. We are here as a support system for her, but you need to talk to her directly because she understands. So I don't even think she understood what she was doing to me at the time, yeah. but that that accountability for myself. Yeah, to be your advocate. Yes. So as early as like seven and eight and nine, I was responsible to have that one-on-one with the doctor, even with my parents in the room and ask questions. And so... I was able to also be guided by my parents on what medications to take, reminders and all that. But they made me the center of attention of my care. And that's one thing that I think a lot of patients lack because they depend wholly on their parents so much that their parents take care of everything. And as they grow older, older, it's harder to adapt that ownership because sexual disease, like, you you guys already know a lot of people know it's it's a very difficult disease to live with so going to boarding school before i went to boarding school i had already gone to be at a nursing school and learned how to do non-version injections because th- that was what we used to manage my pain at the time mm-hmm. so i had to go through a two-week course of how to do an im mm-hmm. in the event that our nurse was not available or not there on time I had my uh, first aid kit with me that was approved and kept in the nurse's office and I had access. So the school did a good job accommodating that. Mm -hmm. And I also had access to heating pads. And when I had a crisis, I had access to hot water. So I'll go down to the kitchen and get a flask and go shower warm water to prevent crisis. Mm -hmm. And then all my professors and teachers knew about my disease state. So I was allowed to wear extra pullovers, like double up on my pullovers. I was allowed to wear like socks when others could not wear socks. Mm-hmm. So I had little accommodations here and there. With that being said, though, I was home at least twice, two, two times a semester. Mm-hmm. So I was this student that wrote so many makeup tests. So yeah. many. So- <laughs> So my time in boarding school was like in and out, in and out, in and out. And then every year at the end of the year, they'll send a letter hoping my parents will withdraw me, mm-hmm. put me in an institution that they, they can watch me. When I, they'll ask me, do you want us to withdraw you? I'll say, no, I want to go back. <laughs> right. In all of this, though, I think that 
what kept me grounded was my support system, my mom, my siblings, everybody always encouraging me, like, hey, you, you know, you're doing well, you can do it. And then my grades never wavered at all. Like, my grades were always on track, despite me doing makeup tests and all that. I, mm-hmm. I enjoyed mm-hmm. studying. And most times I was restricted from a lot of manual labor. Yeah, so I spent a lot of time reading novels and just studying and became like the nerdy nerd. <laughs> right. <laughs> because I didn't have the energy to do these other things. And at one time, um, I think it was from two or three, at the time we were imp- implementing my hydration therapy so I can drink enough water so my eyes are not always yellow. And I overdid it to a point where I got hospitalized for diluting myself. <laughs> so so it's um I think I was just born an overachiever and I had to tweak everything to make sure that I'm not missing out on everything and when I miss out I'll catch up just continue like nothing happened. Right, right, it, right. Wow. That is that is super that is that is super 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 inspirational, you know, because like I said a lot of people who are sickle cell patients, especially back home, they're really, they're, they're defined. It's like their life is defined by this disease to the point that they themselves in their own heads, they think that they cannot achieve anything. They're always so poor because of their disease. Their disease is more like a, a disability, which I mean, it causes a lot of disability in their life, quality of life, for mm-hmm. example. But it's like yeah. they just sink into that notion that, OK, this is how I am. I can't change it. So I'm just going to use put this disease as a banner on my head and be defined by it. Or oh, I can't do this just because. But they don't think about, oh, I'm more than this disease. I am. I can do this. You know, they, 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 they can they don't look at at the disease from a different perspective, you know. So, and I think one thing that your parents actually did, which was really good, was they gave you a voice because a lot of patients don't have a voice because they already have that insecurity from the stigma that's been placed on them from the community that makes them feel like, oh, I'm not good enough. So I, no. it's not even worth it, you know. So your parents, your siblings actually pushed you and gave you a voice and made you feel, and I'm sure they made you feel as normal as any other kid at home, you know, Yes. which I think was probably like a fire that was burning that really pushed you forward to be an overachiever, like you said. Now, I would also imagine that life was different outside of the house. I mean, at home, you probably felt like, you know, you were just like any other sibling, but you know, with the stigma that we have in our community, how did you face, how did you deal with that when you went outside of the home and, you know, just in the community, from the community's perspective? So I think that um, for me, like you said, my parents had like a questioning. So they had prepared me in so many ways. Like my mom used to tell all of us, like, you're the only one that can limit yourself. And it starts with your inner mind, right? And with sickle cell disease, a lot of people get stuck in that depression phase because sickle cell disease is, is going to interrupt your life yes. over and over, over and, and over. over. So yeah. you'd be driving, everything is going well, then you crash. Even when you do everything right, take your medications, rest and everything. So for me, it was those interruptions were harder to bear. For example, um, there was this Christmas, we all went to the beach with my family and the family friends and everybody was having such a good time. And here was I sitting at the beach, the temperature change of the water triggered a sexual crisis. Mm. And I sat on that beach and looked at everyone and I felt deeply saddened. I'm like, oh, because of me now, everybody's probably going to have to go home. So Mm. I'm interrupting such a good Christmas holiday and everything. So 
in my mind, I was hiding that I'm in pain, but just because I didn't want to interrupt everybody else because it wasn't always about me, but it always felt like I'm the one person that interrupts the birthday party. I'm the one person that interrupts the girl's trip. I'm the yeah. one person that interrupts. So somewhere there, some friends like fell off, people that did not understand. And I was not mature enough to really advocate and explain myself. And I was even too drained from the pain to have the time to explain myself. So in certain aspects, I isolated myself. So for example, that day at the beach, I went and sat down at a quiet area and my older brother noticed that I was in pain. So he didn't say nothing. He just came and dug a hole, like dug the sand Uh and told me to lay down in here. Come lay down. So I went and lay down in this. So they all buried me in there. Then he whispered to me, he's like, you're in pain, right? I said, yes, I am. He's like, yeah, the warm sun would help you. I'm, I'm going to go get you your medicine. No one else has to know. It's okay. So it's, it's really, I can't stress how important it is for those around you to, to support. understand that this is state. Those around you to support you effortlessly and those around you to share love and care even when you're afraid to speak up. Yeah. Because the more you have that support, the more you're free to speak up, the more you're open about what's happening to you. And the quicker you're open and um, speaking up about it, the faster the solution, the quicker your recovery time. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. Thank you. Now, talking about crashing, what are your triggers and like what complications do you typically have? So um, every single patient is very different, right? Yeah. Um, I personally have sexual beta thalassemia zero. And And what is that? If you can explain to the people who are not um, health oriented, like healthcare oriented. So it's like one of the worst types of sickle cell disease. So my prognosis and my diagnosis are like light and darkness. Mm-hmm. So I'm living and thriving. But when you look at my lab work, you're like, my goodness, is, is this even true? So for some patients, so I have four sisters, um, actually five sisters. But out of um, the four sisters behind me, um, my last sister has sexual cell disease as well, like the real disease. One of our, my sisters is completely free and one is a carrier. Mm. So with every patient, your disease state's percentage, your percentage of sexual disease is slightly different. Mm-hmm. When you have the trait, for example, you probably have about less than, less than 25% of the gene that will cause the sickling and all the complications of the disease state. Mm-hmm. But when you have the full-blown disease, some people have about 60% sickle gene. Some people have 70, some people have 80. So it differs. I, for one, have 98.99 of the sickle gene. So Mm. what that means is that my only normal hemoglobin in my body is less than 2%. Wow. So I'm like the sick of the sick group if I'm classifying us into groups of how different patients are and how different they will manifest complications and different things. So with knowing that, it, it, it's, it's, I think with my parents knowing that and my mom or dad were not in healthcare at all before they immigrated to the U.S. They were, my dad is a, a botanist. My mom was into business. So they had no healthcare background. Mm-hmm. So they had to learn about, okay, what does a trigger look like? So with sickle cell disease, everything can be a trigger from stress, yeah. from temperature change, from even eating the wrong food, from extreme dehydration, from menstrual cramps and periods for females, and 
the list goes on from flying in high, at high altitudes. Hmm. So this is how I explain it. Sickle cell disease, when you have the full-blown disease, is a disease of oxygen supply and demand. Hmm. So anything that increases your demand more than your body can support can trigger a crisis attack, which is a yeah. painful um, pain episode. So... For example, if you're flying, you're in high altitude, altitude. the oxygen demand of that is higher than what is being supplied. So your body is transitioning and trying to figure out what's going on here. Mm -hmm. And if you have anxiety, a lot of patients suffer from anxiety. So because of the trauma of consistent hospitalization and pain episodes and complications of the disease state, when you start feeling pain as a sexual disease patient, some people get panic, panic attacks. Oh my God, the crisis is coming again. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. So that anxiety increases that oxygen demand for you. Mm -hmm. So panicking makes it even worse. Hmm. So one of the things I teach during uh, my sessions with the foundation is you have to manage your mental state to manage the disease state properly. Yeah. Yeah. So then stress increases oxygen demand, infections, infections, your body cannot keep up, periods, periods for females. With sexual disease, your hemoglobin is somewhere no. between 8 and 10. Yeah. It's not optimal, 14 to 16 for females. So once you're having your period, it's like an extra stressor. So mm -hmm. when I was a teenager, I was a very late bloomer. So I started my period way, way later than everybody else. But with every period initially, I had a crisis trigger attack that some wow. of them led to hospitalizations. And at that time, we didn't even realize it was the periods period. that were triggering yeah. pain. And so we started tracking, okay, what is the source of this crisis this time? What is the source this time? Then we could line it to periods every month. Then we had to figure out period prophylaxis to prevent crisis attacks. So that's one of the aspects that will be different for, for females and males affected by the disease state is that as you transition to puberty, your crisis yeah. might increase based on your periods and your cycle. Another thing is... Um, and it's a big one. I mentioned it again earlier. Dehydration. Yeah. So as someone that lives with sickle cell disease, I'm not the person that say, oh, I don't drink alcohol or I don't do anything. I know that I have to do everything responsibly. If I'm going to have a girl's night and have wine and everything, I have to prepare extra. Yeah. If I was going to drink 3.5 liters today, I might top it to five leaders to make sure that having that girl's night out with a glass or two of wine doesn't land me in a hospital tomorrow where everybody is about their business. Mm -hmm. So you just have to modify how you operate. So in the past year, this month actually made me one year exercising intensely three times a week. Every week, I haven't missed a single week. Wow. And since I started that, my labs are the best they've ever been in my lifetime. Wow. But for a long time, I have even been discouraged by healthcare providers that do not exercise because you crash, you trigger a pain episode and you'll be hospitalized. Mm -hmm. So now I'm learning and using myself as a case study to debunk the myth because it's not about not exercising. It's about yeah. pacing yourself. Right. Starting with small increments. I started with a trainer at 15 minute sessions. I had to find a trainer that had PT, physical therapy background mm -hmm. and explain to them, hey, this is my health. This is my history. I want to exercise for this reason for my health i do not want to lose weight my goal is to build resistance stamina and gain muscle mass to get to my goal weight yeah and 
we drew a plan. My plan was as easy as starting with 15 minute sessions three times a week. Right. It's like a child's play. Like I could barely lift 10 pounds by myself without losing like a lot of um, breath. But now I can exercise for a whole hour without having a crisis attack. But again, I have to prepare. I can't just wake up and be like, okay, I'm going to the gym. I have to drink my water. I have to make sure I had a good rest the night before. I have to. So what happens is I have prioritized my health as the center of my life and everything, career, work, social life, everything comes after my health care and self-care. Yeah. That is such a powerful message. Thank you so much for sharing that. I, even me, I am inspired by your story and I don't even have sickle cell. Like it's, um, it's such a great way to look at life, right? It's such a great way to look at life. Now, I would think that your, your episodes are more controlled here than when you were back home. So what therapeutic options were available to you back home when you had every episode versus here? So back home, like we had limitations and back home, what was, what was being the focus was preventing infection. And then of course, every six of patient has to take folic acid to help them with uh, recycling of their blood cells. So back home, I was consistent on folic acid, one milligram a day. And then er- most patients and every six of patient should be on that regimen is penicillin until you're five years of age to prevent encapsulated bacteria. What that means is our immunity or our bodies are so weak that they cannot fight regular bacteria that healthy people can fight without complications or even hospitalization. Yeah. So most patients have to build that immunity, extra support by being on that antibiotic penicillin until age five. And yeah. that's a practice that is also kept here in the U.S. So I have one of my patients that is six months old, six cell disease patient, and they are on that penicillin for the next five years. And that just gave me like a flashback, like, oh, this was me as a kid. <laughs> yeah. But so I have that. I had then I had the Novartisine for pain. It could be injectable or IV based on how serious that pain was. And then the acetaminophen, we call it, um, what do we call it back home? A paracetamol. Um, I don't know, paracetamol, the yeah. international name. So I had to use that. And then I stayed away from NSAIDs like ibuprofen and other things because of stomach ulcers. Yeah, yeah. Something that people don't realize with sexual disease is every time you get sick and get hospitalized and you feel better and get discharged, the, it doesn't end at discharge. It takes another two to three months to fully recover back to baseline mm-hmm. where you were before you crashed. Yeah. And some people don't even make it to full recovery and they crash again. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that's back home. So we tried everything. My parents tried um, physical therapy, chiropractor. I used to go for massage therapies in Douala once a month to try some um, massages. And so... As early as six, seven, if I ask, if I remember correctly, my parents were using non-traditional and lifestyle modifications on me without me even knowing. Yeah. Because taking me to the massage therapist, taking me to the chiropractors, and um, having me have like really warm baths, soaking me deep. I really enjoy baths now, and I blame my mom for it. <laughs> Even when I'm not in pain, I, I just like soaking in, in the bathtub and just sitting there. It's very soothing. Right. But that was something that also helped me as a kid. When I was in pain, I would soak in the warm tub after taking medications to just distract myself from the pain, music, my sisters to come sing with me, play with me. And 
most times if I wasn't in school and I was hospitalized, they would organize such that my doctor would visit me at home. That was to help me prevent nosocomial infections yeah, or picking in other infections in the hospital. Mm-hmm. So my childhood bedroom had like the ivy pole <laughs> mm. and I had a mini trunk area that had like hospital supplies for when I got sick. And this was just normalized. This was just our life. Right. And it was normal in my family. Everybody knew what to do when I had pain. I have to go bring her warm water. I have to bring me something to drink. My siblings would help me massage my extremities and my joints. Mm-hmm. They'll make me laugh, talk until I fall asleep. So it was... Right. I didn't feel isolated. I didn't feel um, out of place at all. But I always felt this guilt that, oh, my God, they're spending the most on me out of all of us. Yeah. Like, oh, my God, not again. I don't want to get sick again. And the parents are going to spend so much on me. I felt like I was cheating my siblings from the quality time they should have with our parents. Yeah. Because... I was the needy, needy, needy kid. Right. So as I grew older, I freed myself from those thoughts. Yeah. As I realized, like, but it's not my fault. As If I don't ask for this help, they don't mind doing it. I had learned all the ways of communicating and appreciating them more. Yeah, that's that's very great because, you know, I can I can kind of identify with you, uh, but from the other side. Right. Because I have a sibling who has a disability. Right. I don't know. I, I talked about that in a previous episode with my entire family. And in as much as you probably thought that, you know, you had that guilt that you were the one depriving your siblings of all, you know, the the, li- the opportunities or the life that they would have had otherwise, I would stand here to tell you that actually from a sibling's perspective and that's with respect to my own experience with my brother we actually had the guilt that he was not living the life that he that was destined for him he wasn't living the life that we were living he wasn't enjoying the things like we would take trips out of the country but we weren't able to go with him you know we would do so many things but we weren't able to go with him just because it was not possible for us to go with him so we kind of felt that guilt you know so I will not be surprised if your siblings actually felt the guilt that you weren't able to like have experienced certain things that they could experience a hundred percent because like for example at the beach because you're in pain you can't really experience what they're the fun that they were having, you know, 100% because of that pain. So um, that's just another perspective from the other end, you know, but your feelings are very, very valid. If I were in your shoes, I probably would have felt the same way, right? Now, talking about your siblings and especially your other sister who actually is a sickle cell patient, quote me if I'm wrong or, well, however they say it. (laughs) Tell me if I'm wrong, actually. I know that even though there are some common triggers, right, of sickle cell patients. There are some triggers that some patients are more sensitive to than others, right? Is that true? That is totally correct. Right. So compared to your sister, what triggers are you most sensitive to compared to like, you know, the triggers that your sister is sensitive to? I just want people to really understand how much of a different experience two people with the same disease can have. So, like, it comes back to what I mentioned previously. Everybody has a different percentage of what they inherited, right? So, yeah. my sister that also has a disease state, she she literally, she has fewer 
episodes. She even as a kid, she had fewer episodes. She one of the triggers that I remember very much so was the flight when she was flying from Cameroon back to the U.S. She had a bad episode on the flight. Oh, luckily my. My, my middle sister was there to support her through that as well. So she, and she just handles her own episodes or triggers a lot better than I do. And mine are very, very much more debilitating, not undervaluing what she experiences, but she, she and I have very different disease manifestation. Mm-hmm. Like as we speak, I experience a lot of hip issues with social disease because there's something, a complication called a vascular necrosis. So as much yeah. as oxygen does go into your hip bone and that deprivation, start, your hip bones start dying. So a lot of patients will have hip, hip replacements before they're even 35, most of them. And that was also one of the motivations to get into exercising to improve my circulation efficiency, yeah. Yeah. minimize complications. Yeah. So... No two patients would experience the same things. Mm-hmm. I have been lucky not to have like numerous mini strokes or anything. Some patients have numerous mini strokes before they're even 25. Most patients experience a lot of like indigestion issues and um, disease complications from medications. Mm-hmm. So no two patients are the same again. The vast majority of the complications are involved with oxygenation issues. Yeah oxygenation issues so like having hip replacements and knee replacements is because of crisis that will deprive those joints from having that oxygen that's one of the reasons why in lower sets i could not go back to boarding school i had to be homeschooled for whole semester because i was on crutches yeah because my avian the vessel necrosis was so severe that it was affecting my right side both knee and hip that Uh i was recommended to stay off my leg so I had to use crutches my my family used to hide those crutches and make fun of me but (laughs) those siblings (laughs) (laughs) it's all love right I know seriously it it helped with the healing process and just laughing about it so a lot of patients have for me I sit down at work even as a community pharmacist because I have that accommodation and I've spoken about my health and mm-hmm. I approach everything with putting my self-care first and communicating objectively yes yeah. um, before I took my job I told my recruiter I'm like hey we're gonna have something signed and documented that um if I ever get sick, I cannot wait for a replacement to shut the pharmacy down. I have to go now because every minute counts mm-hmm. with my prognosis. And the one thing that I don't compromise is my health. So having those conversations, a lot of people are scared to have this conversation yeah. because they will feel judged or they'll feel like you lack opportunities. You know, people will exclude you. But it depends on how you have these conversations. If you have actualized to a point where you're sure of yourself, you're competent at what you do, you know who you are, you have done the work of showing up first as you before someone with a disease, mm-hmm. then these limitations are easier to manage because yeah. they will play in my mind like, hmm. So I want to tell them. Right, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and especially with respect to, you know, the job, with the way the pharmacy career is going, like, I mean... If you, you're lucky to get a job at this time and age, you know, as a pharmacist. So sometimes those could be limitations that could make you not want to, you know, be 
be transparent about your situation for the fear of being rejected, right? So talking about that, I mean, like you are just, like you said, you are such an overachiever and you are such a trooper, I swear. Because, you know, the first time I ever went to the emergency room in America was my first week of pharmacy school. I swear, I, it was so intense. Like I had a breakdown, like I just felt so sick. I was shaking, like I had to go to the ER. I mean, life in pharmacy school was traumatizing and extremely (laughs) stressful. I cannot even imagine what you went through. But then again, I can not only wait to be inspired by your mindset and your perspective about your own experience in pharmacy school. So how was it for you? So, so going to pharmacy school, I, I, when I came to the U.S., I came here in 2010, I started community college because I was trying to avoid a a lot of loans and I was also finding myself. So when I started community college, um, my second semester, I got involved with something called peer associates. So you guys were responsible, was like work study, but you were responsible for welcoming new students during orientation and so that's where everything changed for me about just finding myself and getting out of that culture shock and just putting myself out there. So during my community college days, I had about three or four severe hospitalizations. And one that stood out with me was the summer where I had to be done with my analytical chemistry and my bio biochem to make it to the timeline when I needed to get into pharmacy school, my timeline yeah. I had set for my Mm-hmm. But then I crashed. I had a bad episode. That was finals week, right? Mm. So I applied to the institution, like, hey, explain to them what my health was, ask them if I could get incomplete grades. Mm-hmm. So I, instead of repeating the whole semester. Mm-hmm. So they approved that. So I had four I grades and this was the worst decision I ever made. And I took analytical, I took organic chemistry that summer. Mm. Even though I had to complete my four I grades. Oh my god, yeah, that, that was that <laughs> so was hectic. When I recovered and I started summer school, I was like, "Oh, I still have those four I's to complete." So I had to stagger up my finals. After every week, I had an, an uh, organic chemistry test. The next week, I'll have one final. Oh my god! You know how summer is really yeah. fast. Yeah, summer and is I'll really short. I'll give myself two weeks off, and then I'll do another final. So. It's not been very rosy, but it's been communicating. Communicating helped me at every step of the way. Yeah. Because I had to tell my professors, hey, I can't take all the I grades in the one month you gave me. I have to spread it out to six weeks. Mm -hmm. And here's the reason why, because I'm also taking organic and I need to graduate by this time. And this is my plan. You guys work with me. So if I didn't ask, I wouldn't know if that was possible. Yeah. So I always go ask, even if I think it's something that is not even no one has ever done it. Mm-hmm. I still ask. Yeah. yeah. Like, oh, yeah. I can be the first to do it. And so fast forward last summer before pharmacy school, I got an internship working for a sickle cell disease lab. Hmm. And I did genetic research with sickle cell disease. So my PI, the personal investigator, was like, you should do biotech and just forget pharmacy school. Right. Come work for me. I'll pay your grad school and you start making money as a research assistant. And you do what you enjoy. You thrive at the sickle cell research. So I sat there. So I went home and asked my dad. I'm like, pharmacy school, biotech, sickle cell research. What do right. I do now? 
he said, wow, I cannot make that choice for you. So that's on you. Set your soul. Whichever you pick, just go with it. Right. So I picked to pursue pharmacy. So I continued my interviews. One of the schools rejected me. I got three admissions, mm-hmm. one wait list during my interview process. One of the schools that was closest to home that I really wanted to go to, on the day I had called to pay my tuition, like you pay to hold your seat, mm-hmm. the counselor said he wanted to speak with me. So when I called him, he said to me, he said, Oh, Zhang, you were an amazing candidate. You were very transparent about your health. You had asked for accommodations. We were a very new school. We've never had anyone that we had to accommodate. We don't go by semesters. We go by quarters. Yeah. So it breaks my heart to tell you this might not be the right place for you. I want you to know if you have other options that will accommodate you, you might want to think about it before you pay this um, yeah. place hold. Yeah. So I told him, I, I thanked him. I was like, I'm so happy you you told me this. I'm so happy you shared with me. You guys had a meeting about me and all this. But I'm very disappointed at the verdict. Yeah, yeah. And, and this tells me this is not the right institution for me. Yeah. I was very, very happy with him. I thanked him very much. Was I disappointed? Yeah. Very. Mm-hmm. So that's another mm-hmm. time I felt like success does this set me back. Yeah. Because I was like, Okay, then what now? So at this time, I only had one. The other, th- this was the first school that had said yes to me. So I was like, done and dusted, we're going. Mm-hmm. But then I didn't pay the money, so my seat was gone. And I didn't pay the money based on the feedback he gave me. Mm-hmm. So my seat was gone. I was like, okay, I need to reply to these other interviews and find a school that will accept me. So in that moment, I had a doubt. I was like, hmm, should I hide it during my interviews with my health? Yeah. And I said, no, I shall continue to live authentic with sexual disease as part of me. Yeah. Because I don't want to come in and say you didn't tell us that or feel like I incited anyone. Mm-hmm. And I want a school that wants me for me in total with my health condition. I'm like, besides, I'm going into health care. Yeah. It should be the most understanding group of people. What is the disconnect? So then I got into um, another institution close to home. And then the institution I finally attended, University of Charleston, I was very upfront with them about the accommodation. They signed a letter. They agreed they would accommodate me. And I told them, like, I might not need this accommodation, but I just want to make sure if I ever need it, I'm not repeating a year when it's not my fault. Yeah. So that's the energy I took into school. Right. <laughs> from day one. And believe it or not, I did not need any accommodation. I had one big crisis, P2 summer going to P3 year. I was hospitalized maybe for four days, five days, and I had to fly and leave the hospital against medical advice because they were not experienced in sexual disease treatment, and I felt that my treatment was not optimal. So I yeah. told my dad, hey, get me a flight me a wheelchair i'm coming home we're going to my home hospital (laughs) right and he's yeah so he got me a flight he got me accommodation so i was this 20 24 year old 23 year old that was being wheeled across the airport because i was so sick that i could Mm -hmm. not even stand to walk Mm -hmm. so the i got wheeled and got into the airport and then my dad was waiting for me when i arrived so they brought the wheelchair and then he took me directly to the hospital (laughs) wow (laughs) 
So that was just the one glitch I had in the four years of pharmacy school. And then I, I became so involved. I was a national officer with the Student National Pharmaceutical Association. In joining that group, I, I ran for national office for two years and I found another support system in my national office group. Wow. So they were aware of my health. They they took care of me. Like even when we go out for social events, they'll they'll keep my water with me. They'll be like, I haven't seen you hydrating. Here you go. Right. And <laughs> so I've been lucky to have a tribe with me along my life everywhere I go. And I think that that has been partly because I am upfront about my struggles. I'm respectful and grateful to the people that support me in ways that they support me. And I have grown confident enough to actually communicate my needs. Right, right. Thank you so much. Thank you very, very much. Now, there's three things that I have learned from you from what you just said. The first thing is being authentic. It's extremely important to be authentic, regardless of how you feel about your condition or your situation. You may think that, oh, I'm different and I am less than, but you will come to discover the power in authenticity. You know, it's extremely important to be authentic. The second thing that I learned from you is it's extremely important to be your advocate. Nobody knows you more than you do. Even the doctors do not know you more than you do. So being your advocate is everything. If you feel a certain way, say something or do something. The doctor is treating you based on an average, based on a study. But when it comes to the real world, when it comes to individual patients, like they have to customize the therapy or the treatment or the assessment based on you as an individual. So the only way that a doctor can fully understand what you're going through is if you are your own advocate, sometimes even against their own advice, but you have to be your own advocate. And the last and most important thing that I have have learned from you is that it's extremely important to pick your tribe because your tribe is literally your energy. Your tribe is like, that's a group of people who will keep pushing you and like holding you when you are too weak to stand up on your own. They will be supportive of you and they will keep pushing you ahead. So it's very important to pick your tribe. So those are the three things that, you know, I took from your story, which is extremely inspirational and powerful. And I really hope that our audience actually gets even more from your story. Now, uh, let's try to change directions a little bit, right? I mean, you are (laughs) probably living your best life in your prime and everything, but I can only imagine your experience when it has to do with like choosing a partner, like your relationship, your the social aspect of your life. So has sickle cell kind of been a hindrance or a motivation for you to, to choose a life partner? Like basically when you were out there in dating world, right? Has sickle cell kind of, you know, been some sort of hindrance, I would say. So I'll say yes and no. That's complicated. And I'm going to explain why. So, and I mentioned earlier, I'm I'm a very late bloomer. So I'm in life when you have a chronic disease like sickle cell disease and you're growing alongside your peers, you, everybody is hating puberty. You're thinking about different things. You're thinking about sexuality. You're thinking about, oh, dating and everything. With sickle cell disease, literally, if you're not at that point of actualization, you're really just thinking about staying alive. Yeah. 
<laughs> like, okay, how am I going to make it through this crisis to stay here, right? Mm-hmm. So if you stay in that piece of um, continuous, uncontrolled state of your disease, of course your dating and everything will be affected drastically. For me, I've seen that the relationships I've been in is the conversation I have on day one. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be news to you later. We're having this conversation now mm-hmm. so that... Yeah, you it shouldn't come as a surprise. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I'm very upfront about my condition and I'm very upfront about communicating the difficulties I may have. Like males with sexual disease, one of the side effects of a sexual disease crisis is prior prison, for example, right? Mm-hmm. That would affect sexuality and the disease. So and and what is that? Explain it to the people who don't understand. So prior prism is like an extended erection based on sexual disease crisis and the blood being yes. stuck in your penis area such yeah. that you're having an erection that you shouldn't have. Yeah. Yeah, practically. And that can damage and cause like even impotence Impotent, and other yeah. things, if not treated quickly. Mm-hmm. So just like in females, sexual activity can trigger a crisis if you're not in your best state or health, mm-hmm. correct? So these are conversations that if you are out here like a young female like myself, you have to have these conversations with whoever you are with because you don't want them to get into a situation they're not aware of or you don't want them to feel less of or feel confused if something happens relating to your health. So that's where communicating comes up first. Like you cannot under communicate because yeah. you want to not do a disservice to whoever you choose as a partner. Mm-hmm. I usually have this conversation initially because I want to know if you know about the sexual history in your family. And if there is any, that's the end of that conversation because right. I don't want to have any kid that's going to go through the things I've gone through. That's why mm-hmm. that I'm trying. Yeah. That would be unfair of me. Yeah. And then I have met different kinds of people. I've met people that will brush it off like, oh, I guess it's, it's no not big that deal. Serious. And no, then when you have a crisis, they're like, oops. <laughs> I've met people that (laughs) will be like, don't tell people you have that. That should not be the center of your life. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, but it's part of me. Yeah, that's that's you. That's who you are. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And then I'm currently in a relationship. I'm very happy in this relationship. And um, I feel that he really understands and supports me. And he's confident that I am confident in my disease state and how to care for myself. I love to see it. it's still a learning it's still a learning curve for him and all, but I don't see that it's affecting me having sex disease is affecting us. Every relationship has ups and downs and all, but the health part of it, because I have normalized living and existing and thriving with it, I don't think that sexual disease currently affects my relationships at all. Right, right. Moved away from some just because they don't, they don't favor me in other aspects, but sickle cell has not been one of them. Right, right, right. Experience, though, with because I have the little foundation, my experience has been for my patients and friends with sexual disease back in Cameroon, a lot of, the, a lot of them have uh, missed marriages and have broken yeah. up because of sickness. Yeah, yeah. And um, I, I cannot know the root cause, but I think half of it is also self-esteem of the patient. And yes. How you first own that disease state and how you reflect it on yourself. And that's how the other person is going to reflect it on you. Yes, that's very true. I was just going to say that you have so much confidence and rightfully so. Like, I shouldn't be surprised that you are confident because you're a sickle cell patient. Like, everybody should be confident in themselves regardless of what they have. Because 
We may not have sickle cell. Everybody has something, right? It may not be sickle cell. It may be some other thing, but we should always remain confident. I mean, I have my days where I'm not confident, but I have to pull myself back up to be confident, you know, because at some point, you know, confidence actually is... It's everything like literally your confidence. Once you get into a room, your confidence could probably determine the energy that you attract. You know what I mean? Yeah. And just because of that confidence, it can win people over and they may not even care about what other story you have to tell about yourself. You know, so confidence is very important. Now, talking about your organization, I wanted us to talk more about, you know, the things that you are passionate about and, you know, just talking about your advocacy. So can you tell us more about it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can. I'm excited. <laughs> You're super excited. Um, so, <laughs> so Bright Star Foundation, it's, uh, it's really near and dear to my heart. It's an advocacy organization for sickle cell disease patients in Cameroon, the diaspora area. And two years ago, prior to COVID, we got UN accredited. So awesome. what we really do is just empower patients to see themselves outside of just that sickle cell stigma so we do like yearly outreach events to help with the patients with COVID-19 some of our activities have been restricted but we're gradually picking back up here and um, this year we're going to do something this September for advocacy purposes um, in the area back home in Cameroon in Boya so the real goal for the organization, I tell people all the time, is not to raise money or pay your hospital bill or anything. It's to really give you the tools of self-care to, one, advocate for yourself as a patient, and to understand your disease state to a point where you live alongside it completely without making that burden just overshadow yeah. your life. Yeah. So I'll give you an example of one of the patients that's part of my NGO that shared a story with me he he's he was about 17 at the time this is 2018 when mm -hmm. i was there in person for one of our outreach events he walked up to me after the seminar the seminar is usually like talks about sexual disease what what to do what to do to prevent crisis what to prevent triggers how to support the parents that have kids with the disease how to form a network of support system where each parent can partner with the other parent and help each other out to decrease mm -hmm. the burden on the family so those are the kind of things that we focus on that patient network and yeah. the parent network so we know each other we share our struggles we share our successes we share our lessons we share our evolution and more like focus groups Yes. Okay. So after the seminar, this young man walked up to me, about 17-year-old at the time. He was telling me he had a friend that had an ulcer. So some patients with sickle cell disease have ulcers, and some of those ulcers don't heal because almost every time they try to heal, you have a crisis. It kind of like reawakens yeah. that ulcer because your cells, your platelets and everything are not up to par. Yeah. So he said that wound, the friend has the wound. They've had it for over three years. It's not healed, and people may in front of him and what advice did we have for him, his friend so he can share that information with his friend so his friend can get better so when he was talking to me I could tell that he's talking about himself mm. it was like a discernment I was like okay because the more I asked more questions and I probed he had answers I'm like yeah. hmm this is a lot of information personal you know about your friend I didn't say that out loud but in my mind I could I could like guess like, okay. So I told him like, hey, can you give me your friend's number so I can reach out to him? Yeah. But before you give me his number, let me tell you what we're going to do. 
We're going to partner you with one of the doctors that came today. We're going to culture that wound. We're going to focus on the bacteria that is affecting this wound that will not heal and target your treatment after that culture. And I'm going to work with you until this wound heals and we'll see how it goes from there. So tell your friend that's the solution that I have for him right now. But I would like his contact information to reach out myself. He broke down in tears. He said, well, I am my friend. Hmm. That moment for me was, I don't even know how to put it in words. Because I knew he was his friend, mm-hmm. but I didn't know how to tell him it's okay to say it's you. Yeah. You know, when he said that, I, it's like a purpose-driven moment. Everything like came together. I was like, okay, this purpose is just not, uh, it's not a joke. It's, this yeah. is a real purpose. I need to keep this up. Yeah. So I sat with him and I asked him, like, so what made you tell me it was you? He said, I just felt comfortable. I, I, I felt myself. I felt seen. I felt heard. And this is not typical. And yeah. So I had to sit there and tell him, like, you have to start by hearing yourself, listening to yourself, finding you outside yeah. of sickness. You're going to fall, but remember, you have to wake up and keep going. So we had that, I'll call it a little mental health chat. Mm-hmm. And it was just like a reawakening. And since Matt, then he, he had that culture done, the wood healed, he's in the university right now. We've kept in touch. And it's one of those things where you like, money cannot buy this. Money cannot buy this. And yeah. that's another drive for me. I'm like, I need to be extremely successful so I can do this full time and just yeah. impact the world. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, yeah. you know, when you're talking, I'm having chills and I'm almost getting emotional because I know we had a conversation before this podcast and this is literally like the first time that I am coming back to recording my podcast. I took like a brief hiatus, like I mentioned before, because I had so many moving parts Right. I mean, I started this podcast when I was like three months pregnant and I was just going and going. I remember even when I had this baby from the hospital bed, I had her on Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, every Wednesdays, that's when the new episode drops. I was on my hospital bed, like sending messages like, oh, the podcast episode is dry. Everybody was like, are you crazy? You just had a baby. And I'm like, the show goes on. (laughs) Right. So I was just on go, 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 go. You know, the last maybe two months have been extremely hectic in my life like from moving houses to like my job was just so overwhelming the baby you know changes and it it was just so many moving parts that I could not even catch a grip so I had to take some time off I had to take a brief hiatus from recording you know just to focus on what's important I mean the podcast is also as important but I just had to get my sanity back because I was going crazy you know and I felt guilty because I was like, well, you know, I'm just not going to be relevant anymore. Or, you know, what am I doing? Like, I I don't want to start this and just let go of it, you know. But I came to realize certain things that even though I wasn't recording new episodes, the old episodes were still making such an impact. impact. Like almost every day I had a message from someone. And the thing is like the audience don't even know the impact that they're having on me like people think I'm having an impact on people but they don't even know the impact like there are so many times that I have been in the middle of it and I just want to quit and that's exactly when I get a message from someone like oh my god this changed me or this you know this is so good please don't stop this is you know like just keep doing this you're helping so many of us like I didn't know about this like 
you know, I keep getting these messages and, you know, people start opening up to me. You know, sometimes I feel like I even need therapy sometimes because I <laughs> absorb so much, much behind the scenes. People are just opening yeah. up to me because obviously this is a safe space to yeah. open up and have those hard conversations. So, but there were some people who are not as confident to come up to the platform to share their stories or to have that conversation. So they reach out to me behind the scenes and they open up to me and they talk to me. So just the fact that I am that person that people can come up to and have comfortable conversations about an uncomfortable topic too, you know, that kind of drives me, that comes full circle and makes me realize that regardless of what it is, what I'm doing makes a difference in somebody's life. It must it mustn't make a difference in everybody's life, but at least someone somewhere Very is being sick. impacted. I mean, I get messages from like countries I've never even heard of, you know? Yeah. And you know, that 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 th- those are one of the things in addition to pursuing my purpose, those are one of the things that keeps me going. And I'm I'm just like, I wish that I could be as successful in this at some point that I can actually do this full time and even seek more stories and grow because these are conversations that our community needs to have, you know? So when you're talking about that full circle moment, I was actually just thinking about my own full circle moment. And at the same time, I also learned that it's okay if I have to take a break, you know, I'm not a machine, I'm human, you know, it's okay if I have to take a break, but as long as I am putting out stuff that adds value to someone's life, it would never stop adding value, you know? So that is another very important message that I have to share with people. And that's also a lesson that I have learned from this conversation. So I really want to thank you so much. So what is the name again of your organization and how can people reach out to you? I mean, I'm going to have that information in the show notes as well. Yes, Brightstar Foundation. So I have my email that you share later. They can reach out via email. We have a Facebook page. We have an Instagram page as well. The advocacy is focused right now in Cameroon, but my long-term goal is to make that international and register it here and have a mother and baby um, chapter. Yeah. And I'm currently working on that process. So for me, sexual advocacy has become a lifestyle. Like people reach out, Instagram, text, and like, hey, can you talk to my cousin that is feeling overwhelmed about choosing a career in medicine people say she shouldn't go to med school because of sickle cell i am transparent about the roadblocks as Mm -hmm. well as transparent about Mm -hmm. the adaptability we are adaptable living with sickle cell is not a limitation for nobody for no reason yeah if you have the accommodation you need yes sometimes you might take longer to accomplish the things you want we just discussed that that doesn't mean you will not accomplish it it means that it's okay to pace yourself it's okay to ask for help it's okay to seek accommodations it's okay to seek your truth your authenticity and in that process do not devalue your worth yeah very important so if I were to go back to my nine-year-old self and tell them what I know now, I would say, keep your head high, understand your worth and start communicating your needs earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Don't be afraid. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you, you, you basically just hit the nail on the head, basically, because I was about to ask you, what advice do you have for other sickle cell patients? You know, and thank you so much for sharing that. Now, what advice do you have for members of our community, especially regard to the myths that 
are being thrown out there regarding sickle cell? You know, what advice do you have regarding the stigma and all of that bad stuff that we have to sweep away out of the house and not under the rugs? Yeah, so sickle cell disease should not be an elephant in the room conversation. Let's normalize it. Yeah. I would say that when you meet someone dealing or struggling with sickle cell disease, you might meet them at the not-so-best time of their life, and you might meet them when they're having a really good time. So just ask questions. Ask the patients or the people affected by the disease, how can I be of help? Where can I learn more? What do you need? How can I be supportive? Because everybody everybody needs to, needs to jump into this bus and, and help us write this bus and have this conversation. So we normalize that sickle cell patients, like you're normal. Yeah. Yes, you have a disease. People with diabetes are out here living normal lives. People yeah. with even type 1 diabetes with an insulin pump. I do have sickle cell disease. I have to take about three to five medications every day. Mm-hmm. Yes, this is my routine. This is my lifestyle. So I don't know anything outside of this lifestyle. Yeah. But that's my normal. So ask us living with the disease, like, what is your normal? Yeah. What can I do to... How can I be a better friend? Check in on your sickle cell disease friends. Yeah. A lot of patients go through ups and downs and ups and downs because of the interruptions in their lives that they have no control over. Mm-hmm. So if you have a friend affected by sickle cell disease or a family member, check in on them even when they ghost you or they're yeah. silent. They might not be okay. They're just trying to cope and understand. And most times... Even myself, it took me until 13, 14, 15 to find the right words to even communicate how I can be helped or what I needed or what is working or what isn't. Yeah. And then for my sexual patients out there, it's okay to say no to events. It's okay to say no to commitments. It's okay to say no without explaining yourself. And you have to choose you prioritize your health because once you optimize your health, you will live completely and you will thrive and you achieve your goals, your ambitions. You can have everything. You can have a real career. You can have a good family. You can, you can do anything you put your mind to do. Yeah. You just have to be strategic. That's so learn true. about your disease state. Don't let your mom or dad be the driver of your boss because you are the carrier of this disease. You are the one living with it. You have to thrive. You have to thrive. You have to do the work. Yeah. Consistency. I cannot stress consistency enough. You have to take your medications. You cannot say, I'll take it today and I'll take it tomorrow. And then when you get sick, you blame it on sick or disease. No. Yeah. Consistency is key. You have to do the work. You have to stay consistent. You cannot make excuses. Don't make this disease a center of your life. Take care of its complications. Take care of yourself. But remember who you are outside of sickle cell anemia. Right. It's your whole person. Right. Wow. That's a powerful way to end this conversation. I want to thank you so much, Ojang, for all the <laughs> powerful and inspirational words that you have thrown at us. Like, I really, really, really want to thank you. I love to see it. I'm super inspired. Honestly, this is a great way to come back to recording. Like, I mean, you have empowered me and I'm sure you have empowered the audience as well. So what last words do you have before we end this conversation? 
So my goal really is to become an advocate, a social disease coach. And as I grow in this area, I am still growing in it. If you know anyone that is struggling with sickle cell disease, be it that they're struggling with just self-care or they're struggling with complications or they're struggling with anything sickle cell disease related, it doesn't have to be the patient. It can be the parent, the family members, the friends. Just yeah. connect me to them. Yes. I want to continue to expand and grow the sickle cell disease tribe so we can continue to spread the word. And if you're willing to learn more about the disease state and you don't know where to start, I'm your girl. Hey. (laughs) And let's normalize this disease. Let's talk about it. Let's help our next generation to have fewer patients that have this disease state. Let us go test. Know your genotype. Know your sexual disease trait status. Know your sexual status. Know your family health history. It starts with the genetics. Us as Africans, we wait until something happens. We need to become proactive. Proactive, yes. Proactivity in genetic disorders, especially sickle cell disease, which is the most common genetic disease that affects us, mm-hmm. is, is way overdue. Yeah. So if you haven't tested your phenotype or genotype, go test today or make a plan to test before the year runs out. Yes. Thank you, Annette, for doing it. I know. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. I, I can't, I, I don't know what else to say, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> You know, Thank you um, for having me. I know, I know, I know. It was such a pleasure and an honor having you as well. I wish you all the best. I definitely will keep in touch. We're going to have a conversation again in the future okay. for sure. You know, I really want to keep in touch and just get to see what you're doing and get to, you know, just see how your journey progresses. So I thank you so much again. And I will talk to you in the next episode. Bye. That's it for today. Thank you for listening to our show. If you want to participate in the show or find out more helpful resources, then visit www.livingafricanpodcast.com for more information or email us at hello at livingafricanpodcast.com. Also, don't forget to connect with us on all social media platforms at Living African Podcast. You can also connect with Anyo directly on Facebook or Instagram at Anyo Fombard. Thanks again for listening and let's not forget to be more understanding and nicer to one another.